Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we look to you, Lord. Be thou our vision, be our wisdom, be our truth. Father, I thank you this afternoon that you have not chosen great things, mighty things, wise things of this world, Lord, but that you have chosen simple things. to confound the minds of the mighty, Lord. Father, I invite your wisdom, your strength, your power, your Holy Spirit down today. I pray that you would anoint this afternoon's service. I pray that it would be that you would give courage to your weak servant here, Lord. I pray that you would allow the burning heart of passion for these young people to show, to be drawn. Lord, I pray that Jesus would be exalted and that you would be glorified and that the future could be changed in the lives of these young people and all the people they impact from this day forward as they accept and they reach out and grasp and take a hold of the high calling of God. Be with us and bless, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I almost forgot I was supposed to introduce myself. <clears throat> Could I have the Dutter family all stand up, please? Suzanne is my wife. You met her last night. Our oldest son, Ivan, is on the right back here. He's 12. Marshall is 10, soon to be 11. Heather is the shorter girl in the back beside Suzanne. She is 8, almost 9. And Dina is beside her. She turned six this past August. Micah happens to be in bed sleeping where all four-year-olds ought to be, I suppose, at three, two o'clock in the afternoon. He is four. He is a very energetic, enthusiastic little philosopher, so if you get an opportunity to visit with him, I would encourage you to do so. I rejoice to introduce my family to you for this reason, young people. Some of you know this, a few of you, a couple of you here know this, but one of the passions and deepest desires of my heart is to erase some of this um, cross-generational or generational identity and that one generation would blend into the next generation and that the older could encourage the younger and not only encourage them but teach them and be an example to them. And I stand here somewhere in that gap between these older brothers that have been talking to you and yourselves. I'm not old enough to be, I would be barely old enough to be anyone's father. It wouldn't be right if I was. I'm not old enough to be your father today. So I'm kind of like what I'm hoping that you will be for my children. I would invite you to find young people. I don't care if they're 3, 4, or if they're 8, 10, 12. I would invite you to find them and become a mentor to them. My children can probably tell you which young people know them by name, the ones they're going to run up to and give a hug, and that tells me who they're going to look up to when they reach 18 and 20 years old, and somebody is going to be their um, mentor, uh, the person they look up to as, as something they can put a mental picture on of what I want to be like. If you will impersonate Jesus Christ to my children, I will rejoice, young people. I would invite you through the next five days to reach out to these, what uh, Brother Pete's been referring to as the junior class. There's several of them here, and you've got a big opportunity. I know you're here to learn, but that's just one of the other uh, disciplines of life. One of the other things that a disciple will do is to learn how to minister to those younger. They won't always be 8 and 10 years old, and now's your opportunity to impact the young life, and I encourage you to do that. Do it for me, for my children. Do it for the fathers that are here. And do it for your own posterity because that vision will then just pass itself along. I'm humbled to have this opportunity. I appreciated what Brother Larry said this morning. I appreciated the whole topic. As he introduced this fact to you, I have a burden for young people. That is this. I think for too long 
we have taught young people that, that or we've actually isolated and we've insulated our young people from the reality of life. And I am beyond that. Today I'm ready to tell you and any young person I come in contact with that you are a special generation. Every generation was special and the enemy was just as powerful always. But I'm here to tell you that things are changing and they're changing fast. When I was 20 years old, and maybe even 25 years old, I never would have dreamed that somebody in the United States of America was going to be sitting in jail for several weeks because he, because he couldn't stand alternate lifestyles. Or um, mother, two mothers with one daughter. I never thought we would have to stand up and harbor those kinds of people and give them a chance in life. I, I guess I was blind. That's only been 10, 12 years ago. You're a special generation. I don't think you can ever... I think you might as well get the blinders off your eyes if you have them. I don't think you do. And just expect things to not go easy in your life for the next 50 years. If you do with the gospel what I think you should do and what I think you will do, I think you'll be called to set in some places that aren't very comfortable. I think you'll be called to stand before some people who are going to be a little hard to convince that you're right. Maybe impossible. I just want to encourage you that you're a special generation. I want to give you special courage as the Lord gives you callings in life. We've been receiving good instruction about who this God is and who's fighting for us and whose spirit lives within us, doing battle against the powers of darkness. Cling to that. You're a special generation. I, I just bless you with courage and go out with that gospel. Philippians 2.15 says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And that's what I want to bless you to be as you go out after this week. And I know you have already, but I want to encourage you to go on and shine all the brighter. As the world gets darker, your light shines brighter. Lights in the world. Lights in the world. There's a lot of potential packed into these chairs here today. There might only be 37 young people here, but 37 young people who each go home and impact... 37 more, and just you do the multiplication. There's a lot of potential in your generation. I'm excited that there's young people who have their Bibles open, who come to places like this. I'll just tell you, young people, I didn't know that I had this opportunity when I was 20 and 25 and 18. I didn't know that. I don't know if I did, really. Really, in my life, I didn't have this opportunity. And I rejoice that I can bring my children who are approaching this age to a place like this. Well, they can see, you don't know what it did to my heart to see all you young people stand up. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to cut way into our message today. But to stand up and each of you deliver with confidence, open faith. You know, I really appreciate this Bible character. And here's the reason why. That blessed me so much. I long for the day when my children can stand up and with a clear eye say, you know, my favorite Bible character is Joseph. And here's why it is. We're going to talk about Joseph later this week. Get your hands ready. I have some questions for you. How many of, uh, how many of you have ever felt a disconnect in your communication with God? How many of you have ever had pride in your life? Okay. How many have ever been a pretender? Recently, we were at Men's Fellowship Conference a month ago in Burn, Indiana, and some of you probably heard this, but I was so impressed that an elder would humble himself to the point to tell us about a time in his life when, when there was a meeting like this, and afterward, anybody with a burden they needed to work through were invited to go into another room, and, and he admitted that he waited until a certain influential individual was watching before he sidled into that room so he could get noticed. That's a pretender. How many of you want to be effective in the kingdom of God? Wonderful. And one more. How many of you want to be changed when you leave this place this week? Want to be a different person? 100%. I want to point a couple things out here this afternoon, if you can see them. You'll notice up here in the right left-hand corner the word pretense. And over here is the word pride. 
I want to tell you a couple more things. I think you all know what the red circle with the, with the red line through it means. I'll just tell you, if you want to be uh, effective in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be changed from this week, after this week, I would encourage you to spend your quiet times. I would, I would encourage you to spend many moments examining yourself for pretense and pride. And I'll tell you why. The Spirit moves me to share a personal testimony here just a little bit. You see, I'd already told you that I'm only... I'm just a few years older than you are. I'm, I'm between these two generations somehow. And God doesn't get done working with you. I hope He never does. But we were invited to speak here. And God gave us the nod to go ahead and come, knowing full well that there was no way that, that this man could do this project, this ministry. So we found ourselves at Burn, Indiana. And most of you know who Brother Dale Heise is. And he was ministering there, and he was talking about kingdom, uh, greatness, the kingdom kind. And on Thursday of that week, he was talking about surrender. And I don't need to go into all his message. But here was a young man, young minister of the gospel, sitting there wrestling with those two questions I asked you earlier. I knew, and I know yet today, that I want to be effective in the kingdom of heaven. I want to have an impact. I want to do something for it. And I knew that I wanted to be changed by the end of that week. When he got done sharing all of the work that God had done in his life, painful things, painful things, I found a deep quietness and soul-searching in my heart. And I went and found a quiet place, and I began to cry out to God. And I did a hard examination there. God did a hard examination there. And before I knew it, I was broken and I was weeping on the floor of that prayer room as I realized that there was a significant chunk of my life that I had not released. I had not surrendered to God for Him to use, however He wanted to use it. It was significant. I, I'm ashamed to even tell you what it was. It seems so childish yet today. I, I had not surrendered. I had, I had been telling God subconsciously that... I wanted to be an effective minister. I wanted to be an impact in the kingdom. And that he could surely do that without getting too close to my life, like touching my wife or my children. Didn't even know I was doing it. He wrenched that out of my heart, and it felt like a hunk of my heart came out with it. And every time I sat there on the floor and I thought I'd regained uh, uh, composure, I could see myself. The picture came back, and there was a casket, and there was a, one of my children in that casket. That was what I, I had God threatening me, and, it, and God wasn't doing that at all. But that was my mind that was doing that. And it just tore me up again, and, and God worked with me until I can say, like Brother Merle said the other, other night, I will surrender. I will surrender. And I'll just tell you, I couldn't be standing here today had it not been for that event. I'm confident of that, and God knew that. And I'm just asking you, as we go through this week and we look at the life callings, the callings of God in your life, look for that spot. It may be there. And, you, and, and I expect God to pull out another one sometime. I just, I just feel it. I think that God will work with us throughout our entire life and what He wants to see is us surrendered. I was over here in the, in, the, in, our, in the study room over there a little while ago, just a few minutes ago, and I was crying out to God and I was weeping because I realized, again, that I wasn't surrendered. And I just told God, I said, I said, you know, I just wish I could be a student. shared this with a couple of you. And God spoke immediately. He said, what do you think you are? So I'm just a student with you, young brothers and sisters, this morning. We've got to get moving here. I want to talk just briefly about life calling before we get into Let This Mind Be In You. Life calling. I don't know what you think about that title. I wasn't sure what I thought at first. But I want to take the title of, of life calling. I want to change it just a little bit. I want to change it from life calling. And I want to change it to life calling! Life calling. What I mean is, it's an alive calling. It's an alive calling. Not only that, it's a living calling. A living calling. It's not just life calling. It's a living calling. If it's a calling from God, and it's a calling in His kingdom, it's a living calling. Something that's alive. We're talking about a kingdom calling now. 
We're not talking about a career. We're not going to spend any time talking about what you think you might be called to do in your life as far as how to provide for your family and all those things. That's important, but that's not what we're going to waste any time talking about today. We're talking about a living calling. It's a little bit like a living sacrifice. In fact, maybe that's exactly what it is, a living sacrifice. I want to, get, I want to hit just a few verses here about the calling. Um, if it's God calling which we trust that's what we're talking about today. If it's God calling, it's four things. If it's God calling, it's a hopeful calling. If it's a God calling, it's a holy calling. If it's a God calling, it's a high calling. And it's a heavenly calling. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 says, There is one body, one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling. There can be a lot of diversity in the body of Christ. There can be a lot of differences. Scripture lays it out there in Ephesians. But there is one hope of your calling. One hope. It's a hopeful calling. Holy calling. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. I'll tell you, there's an awful drought of holiness in the world today. It's a holy calling if it's from God. It's a high calling. Philippians 3.14 I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What does Isaiah say there in, in the uh, 62nd chapter maybe? Go through, go through the gates, prepare you the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway. Gather up the stones. Lift up a standard for the people. Cast up the highway. It's a highway. Lift up a standard. That's what we're encouraging you to do this week. Heavenly calling. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Heavenly calling. Just remember, these callings that we were asked to talk about this week are hopeful, they're holy, they're high, and they're heavenly. And they are a living calling. And they are a living sacrifice. The subheadings that I were given, I suppose you're all aware of that, under life calling are servanthood, neighborhood, fatherhood, motherhood, and singlehood. Kind of hoodie. <laughs> and uh, I contemplated on just what kind of a prop I could use to, to do that. And I thought about asking my wife to make uh, five different type hoods and all that that I could sock on some of you folks. And I decided, you know, we're really supposed to not be talking about that as much as servanthood itself and neighborhood and so forth. So we'll just briefly talk about the hood just a little bit. The, the suffix hood, when added to a word, added behind a word, many times means, largely means the state of being. The state of being. So like the state of being a servant, for example, today's message. But let's go ahead and consider the article, the hood, as an article of clothing. Just in, in your mind's eye, just picture it. Depending on the style and the type of hood, um, the appearance of an individual can be completely changed. There's all kinds of different hoods. There's hoods that completely cover the head. There's hoods that just cover a little bit. But the, 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 the uh, appearance of an individual can be entirely changed from one thing to another. Consider your calling, in other words, as we talk about callings, as a garment. Consider it as a garment and... And when you put on this garment of servanthood today, for example, that becomes your identity. That becomes who you are. That becomes what you look like. That's what people might, perhaps will know you as, servanthood, a servant. Just a couple more things. Now consider the words of Solomon when he says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I have a purpose for this. Or the words of Jesus when he said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The heart gets involved here. It's not just a hood. It's not just something we put on outside. It sounds to me like the Bible's saying, if God has your heart, He has your everything. And if God doesn't have your everything, He doesn't have your heart. Does that sound right? That's what it sounds like to me. So if the hood isn't a result of the heart, if what we put on... What we look like, what we do, isn't a result of what comes from our heart. We need to back up and take another look at pretense. A 
I think it would be safe in saying, as we look about, as we look at that definition of the state of being, and the two wise proverbs out of the scriptures about the heart, I think it would be safe in saying that the subjects this week could actually be titled the servant heart. We're not going to change the subject particularly, but the servant heart, the the uh, neighbor heart, the father heart, etc. Because if the hood isn't the result of the heart. We need to back up and take another look at pretense. I'm going to just briefly go through a little summary that I'm going to probably cover every day, and we may even add to it. There's four points, and then a little a little summary at the bottom here. And it affects every one of these callings. Number one, these are some things I want us to remember. They're very simple things, very basic Number one, I am a servant of God. God is my master. I am a servant of God, allowing Him to bless others through me. Number two, I need to focus on people rather than on performance. Focus on their hearts and needs. I need to focus on people rather than performance. I need to make others feel valuable, like they have a value. Number four, there must be no partiality in my heart. I'm a servant of God. I need to focus on people not per- rather than performance. I need to make others feel valuable, and there must be no partiality in my heart. And here's one little phrase at the bottom here that's, that I'm going to give to you. And if I pass away right now at this moment, and it's all over with, this is the message. A common recipe for success in all kingdom callings. Even outside of these five, a common recipe for success in all kingdom callings is a victory over self, all all caps. A victory over self, not to be gained by personal determination or energy, but by total surrender to the will of God. It's really easy to say. It's really easy to read off to you. So now I want to talk about servanthood. I've already used up almost half our time just kind of getting warmed up here and getting to know you a little bit and letting you get to know me, I guess. But uh, we'll, we'll go through ser- servant here to here. I really appreciated um, our devotions last night. That just paved the way for the message of servanthood today. I really enjoyed that. Give me courage. So let this mind be in you. It's kind of the scriptural title I've chosen in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you. And the burden then... For the message is the search for surrender. The search for surrender. Now, Jordan, you've kind of picked a uh, vulnerable seat here today, I've noticed. But tell me what would happen if Jordan really didn't know what was going on, and I come over here, and I said, all right, give me your ear. Come on, go, you know. And Jordan said, no, I'm staying right here. I won't pull in your ear again, brother, don't worry. I wanted Jordan for my servant, and Jordan didn't want to be my servant, but I grabbed his ear and I pulled him along anyway. Um, What kind of servant would Jordan be? And not only that, where would the blessing be? There would be no blessing in it for Jordan, there would be no blessing in it for me. I know a little bit about what I'm talking about. I watched Brother Merle walk around here with his ear several times last night, and I thought about my own ear, and I thought about how many times I thought my ear had been pierced, and time went by and I realized it was just a scratch. Had never went through. It's got to be pierced. It's got to go all the way through. Not only that, when we think about pretense, you know they make these little stickers around Halloween time, I guess, or whatever they are. Little stickers that you can stick on that make it look like a wound. I've been guilty of doing that before, too sticking that little wound on my ear that's just an adhesive sticker and lo and behold it's not long until you shower or something and it comes right off it's gone pretense is gone what we're asking for today what we're searching for is the man who walks up to the post and willingly lays his ear on the post completely surrendered you think well that's easy what about when the point of that all starts cutting into your ear what about when it's painful 
What about when it was a post, a doorpost that you never thought you'd ever have to enter into or go through or walk in? Surrender. The search for surrender. I'll just admit, I'm not sure how I'm going to get through my outline because the search for surrender landed on my heart this morning in the middle of Larry's talk. I was headed a different direction. But the Lord said, talk about the search for surrender. So now I have these notes and they feel like almost like a blockade, but I'm not sure if I could take up the next 30 minutes without some of it. So bear with me here and just just hear my heart. Just hear my heart. I don't have a lot of eloquent words, but I have a lot of love. And I have a lot of care for you young people. I see here before me a lot of zeal and a lot of energy. A lot of capable people. A lot of intelligence. I say this cautiously, but I want us to be careful. Because sometimes our best intentions and our most sincere desires to be doing something for God, doing something in the kingdom, in our restless energy we can lose sight of the truest purpose truest purpose for being a servant of God. What did I just say? A servant of God. Not a servant of my flesh. Not a servant of my ego. Not a servant of other individuals, but a servant of God. There is a purpose for it. There is a purpose, and I'm going to say one to, to today, for one, one primary purpose is to lay up treasure in heaven, and I'll follow that quickly by saying, whose treasure? God's treasure. It's not our treasure, it's God's treasure. Remember this, the reward of God is the souls of men. God feels a rich reward when souls of men are saved and they land in the, in the heavenly places. And if you have a little part in that as a, as a servant of the great Master Jesus Christ, may God be praised. The reward of God is the souls of men. I want to hit one more point here um, before we get into Philippians chapter 3, and that is the question, whose servant? Now, we all know who's servant, but sometimes I think we get a little confused with this one. And I don't know that it's wrong to use the phrases that we do, but we talk about serving people. We talk about serving others in their needs. I would like to take that away from us. I believe that by the words of the apostles that we are servants of God or servants of Jesus Christ. I care not whether you say God or Jesus Christ. The apostles said, I believe it was Paul that said he was a servant of God when he introduced himself in his letters. Maybe even Jesus Christ in one of them, I believe. Peter said, James said he was a servant of God, and Peter said he was a servant of Jesus Christ. None of them said, I'm a servant of of my fellow man or a servant of you. He said, I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. It makes all the difference, I believe. It makes all the difference in our motive. It makes all the difference in our method. It makes all the difference in how we go about serving is is recognizing that God is our master. I want to clearly say that the kingdom servant heart is the servant of God, allowing him to bless others using the servant people in the name of Jesus. So we bless others, but we serve God. We serve God, allowing him to bless others. We could go back to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're not going to take the time, but if you want to go back there to verify what I've just said, you'll find in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, a comparison of Moses and Jesus there. And, And Jesus is depicted then... Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. He said he was son over the house, and we are the house. doesn't say anything about us being the house, or us being the master, or people being the master, but Jesus was the master over the house in Hebrews chapter chapter 3. So let's quickly go to Philippians 2, um, because we're just simply not going to... I knew I was going to infringe on, infringe on the, uh, the little servanthood thing, but we had such an excellent devotions last night on servanthood that, that uh, I think we'll be well introduced until this is all done. Philippians 3. Let this mind be in you. What more perfect example of servanthood than Jesus Christ? Called to surrender. The search for surrender. We're going to find in Philippians chapter 3... We're going to be called to surrender our position. We're going to be called to surrender our pride. We're going to be called to surrender our possessiveness, our popularity, our polarity, and our preferences. Let's quickly read these, three, these few verses. 
Let nothing be done, verse 3, through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Let's go ahead and read these verses. They're not part of my outline here. But wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I've broken six phrases out of these few verses. The very first one says, Let nothing be done through strife. Let nothing be done through strife. We are called to surrender our position. Let's look at Luke chapter 22 briefly. And we will find an illustration of strife going on here. Verse 24 says, And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. Maybe we should back up and get the setting. This was when Jesus was in the upper room and, and His loved ones were around Him and He was trying to minister to them there and trying to, to uh, share a little bit uh, the communion there, the cup and the, and the bread, uh, His broken body. And this come bursting out of his mouth there after he talked about the uh, the blood which was shed and the agony was in his heart, I believe, when he said, Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me at the, on the table. Truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. They knew that there were some differences among them, and they immediately began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. I suppose if there was somebody that was going to be the least, then there had to be somebody that was the greatest. And let's, I just wonder who that could be. And he said unto them, this was the illustration that Jesus immediately turned around and gave them. He said, the, prince, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that setteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that setteth at meat, but I am among you as one that serveth. That was the attitude of Jesus. He didn't come for himself. He didn't come that he might be fed. He didn't come that he might be saved. He didn't come that he might live in a palace or be comfortable. He came that you and I might be saved, that you and I might have hope that we might have life, and that we might enjoy the kingdom of heaven. This position of benefactor intrigues me. I don't know if you've ever looked into the, the benefactor here in Luke chapter 22, but the term benefactor says or is defined one who confers blessing. Or benefit, I'm sorry. One who confers benefit. One who confers a benefit to another. It implies that this individual has something that another individual doesn't have. It implies a superior inferior a superiority inferiority mentality. Like the benefactor is superior and he is, and he confers benefits to those who, who have less and he can reach them, or he thinks he can reach them by, by uh and Jesus said that's how the that's how the kings of the Gentiles do. They have a lot and they like to bestow it upon others. And they like their position as a king. They like the ability they have to bless others. It's not wrong to bless others, but the attitude of a benefactor, and if you disagree with this, wonderful, we'll talk about it. But I'm just telling you that the attitude of a benefactor comes back to the fact that the individual needs served, and I have wherewith to serve him, and I will bless him. I will benefit him. I will give to him who is beneath me. And it's, it, Jesus is exhorting us against that. There's not to be any strife about who's high and who's low. We need to be very careful about the methods we use in blessing others. 
Remember what he says here. The servant is inferior to the master. The, the servant is actually inferior to whom, whom he has served. So now if we detract just a little bit from being the servant of God and we're blessing others and say, I am serving somebody who has needs, what's the Bible say who's superior? The one who's being served, not the one who serves. The kings of the Gentiles get that mixed up. And we think that the one who actually has a lot to give is the one who's, who is superior. No, it's the one who's being served. The one who sets at the table. The one who partakes of the blessing is greater, he says. We need to be careful what method we use in blessing others. We need to make sure that we are allowing God to bless them through us. I've been thinking a little bit about our benevolent fund. I've even thinking about changing the title in our bookkeeping from benevolent fund to something besides that, like um, the Lord's money or something. It would be just as well. Um, maybe terminology doesn't mean that much, but benevolent fund can have this little indicator in my heart that I have something wherewith I can give to somebody else and who has less. What do you have that you have not been given? Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So, question for no strife about position. We're called to surrender. Can I surrender being acknowledged as a benefactor? Can I surrender that? Can I surrender having my name attached to any good? I believe I mentioned it just yesterday morning, that, that, and it's an old saying, that there'd be a lot of good that can be done if we don't care who gets the benefit. Pride. We're called to surrender pride in our search for surrender. No pride, no pretense. Philippians chapter 3 again, Let nothing be done through strife or, in, or vainglory. Let nothing be done through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. We're called to surrender our pride. Here's the definition of vainglory. Exclusive vanity excited by one's own performances. Think about that a while. Think about that, preachers. Think about that, young people who are gifted. It's tempting sometimes. Exclusive vanity excited by one's own performance. Empty pride. Undue elation of mind. An elated mind that's not even due. That's what vainglory is. We're called to surrender our pride if we're going to be a servant of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be like Him. Psalm 25 verse 7 says, It is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory. Obadiah 4, verse 4, Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, since will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. It's temporary. It's only for this little portion of time. Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, He said, You have your reward if you do these things to be seen of men. If you try to do these things in your own strength and you do it for the splash that it makes, the splash is all the rewards you're going to have and the ripples soon disappear and they're gone. I will bring thee down, he says. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So much for deciding who we're going to serve. Very clear here that who we're going to serve is each going to serve the other. That's very juvenile. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Esteem the other of more value. I had a brother just ask me yesterday afternoon, what, what does that mean when, uh, when somebody seems to take a pretty firm stance on something that's considered unsound doctrine or that might be leading astray? Do we esteem that better than our own opinion? I told him, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I told him, I said, I think that we need to esteem the value of other souls the value of other people, the value of their needs, the value of, of their hurts, their joys, all of that better than our own. We never esteem anything that's untruth better than truth. Truth is truth. So we're not talking about esteeming someone's a false opinion or wrong opinion. We're simply talking about esteeming them as an individual and their needs, their desires, their interests, their joys, their sorrows greater than my own, worthy of putting more effort and energy to into than my own. And lowliness of mind esteem other better than themselves. 
We are called today to surrender our possessiveness. Speaks of the care of others. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. If we want to be a servant, a servant heart in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we need to look about the comfort of others. Jesus was certainly not looking about his own comfort when he came. We all know that. We all love to think about our Jesus. We all love to think about how he came, how he came and he found himself in a little lowly place that had really no meaning or or, uh, uh, you know, coming up here soon is, is, I'm kind of running ahead here, but in my mind actually. But So he was born in a stable. There was no beauty that we should desire him. There was no comeliness about a stable. And here in a week or so, we're coming up to the day when, when we try to remember that Jesus come into Jerusalem and, and what did he ride on? He rode on a little old donkey. We got a little donkey at our house. Um, it's about that big, she is. And she's not even a full. She's a four-year-old donkey. I don't know, she maybe stands 42 inches at her shoulders. Nothing too um, impressive about our little donkey. Nothing like the great steeds. that we. Well, there's horses all over Treasure Valley. Some of them are pretty sleek and pretty nice looking. And if I was going to be a king, and if I wanted to come into Jerusalem, I wouldn't look for our little donkey. My feet would be dragging the ground. I mean, that's pretty lowly. But that's who Jesus was. He, uh, he, he come in a lowly way. He didn't come about his own comfort. It didn't stop there. You know it all. I don't even have to reiterate it. But we love to think about it. How that Jesus, with tenderness in his eyes, he looked not on his own things, but he looked on the things of others. As he looked across the multitude and he had compassion on them and he healed them all. He saw a weeping mother and he said, what's the trouble? And her son was in the buyer and he said, well, you know, wake up. And the son came to life again. He saw a couple sisters and they're... And they're and their brother was in the tomb, had been for several days. He wasn't so concerned about it. He wept. He did care. But he cared about those women too. He says, you know, I'll go, I'll, I'll go out of my way and I'll come over there. And I'll speak to this man and he'll come to life. And we can go on and on. Jesus looked not on his own things, but also on the things of others. Furthermore, he looked on you. And he looked on me. And he said, you know what? These people are going to lose out to the powers of darkness, to that upside-down star, if you please, whatever it was, called the ten, anyhow, it doesn't matter. They're going to lose out. They're not going to be able to do it. They're dead. They're doomed. You know, I love them so much. Jesus didn't say it was easy. Stop and think about how he acted when he looked into that cup. And, oh, Father, if it be possible, let it pass from me. It may be the case when you're called to look on the things of others, when you're called to suffer and serve and sacrifice for the things of others, it may be a little like Jesus. It may be a little like weeping and saying, God, I can't do it. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's too hard. It's too high. It's too ugly. It's not inviting. Those moments, take a good look at yourself. And how black your heart was. And how far Jesus came. Not looking on his own things, but also on the things of others. On your own things. He's calling us to do the same thing. He told told Peter one time, he said, Peter, when you're converted, I want you to live for yourself. No. I want you to strengthen your brethren. I want you to get outside of your shell. I want you to get out there and get to work. And like like, uh, Kurt, Peter's another favorite of mine. Also, Peter did just that. Peter wasn't too ashamed to say what he thought. Peter wasn't too ashamed to go to the hard places. Peter, I want you to strengthen your brethren when you're converted. I want you to serve others. He said something to Peter again there in John 21, verse 16. He said, Peter, do you love me? Well, yeah, I love you. And he asked him that multiple times to the point that Peter, like me sometimes, got a little impatient. What do you think I just said? I said I love you. Yes, I love you. But what did Jesus say? He said, feed my sheep. And then he said, feed my lambs, feed the little ones, feed those of, of, of little understanding, feed them. Look not on your own things, look also on the things of others. And he's calling us to do the same thing today. To be a chore boy for Jesus, if you please. Chore boy, chore boy for Jesus, feed the sheep, they're hungry. Feed the lambs, they're hungry. There's people out there that are lambs and sheep and they don't even know they are yet. Hold out some good food for them. Invite them into the fold. 
surrender our possessiveness, our own things, looking on our own things and not on the things of others. We are called as a servant of Jesus Christ in this servanthood calling, this high, heavenly, hopeful calling to surrender our popularity. Jesus, it says, made himself of no reputation, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. No reputation. I know every one of you wants to make of yourselves make yourselves of no reputation because every one of you raised your hands that you wanted to be changed. And I could tell by that that every one of you wanted to get this pretense out of your life. When I make an effort to make myself a reputation, it's built soundly on the word pretense and the word pride. And I have to go back there rather often in my heart. And, and in fact, it's stamped there. But when I go to prayer and I ask God, those two red circles come to my mind. And I bless Him for that. He's done that for my conscience. It's just a red, it's just a red light. A red circle with a slash through it. It's a red light that says, Sandy, look out. Pretense is eating at you again. You're wanting a reputation. You're wanting people to notice what you can do. If that ever bites you, the desire for reputation, think about the red, no pretense sign. There's a story, I don't know if you've ever heard of, of a man named Stephen Bishop. What was his name? Stephen Bishop. He was a black boy back in uh, 1840s, I believe. 1840s, 30s and 40s. Most of you know about the Mammoth Cave and where it is, and much, uh, many of you have probably been in, in the cave, I suppose. It's been a long time since I have, but I remember the cave. It's pretty impressive. This Stephen Bishop was a slave. And I forgot to mention that when we talk about servant, and I'm not going to try to make a big point out of that today necessarily, but doulos is slave, and that's what the servant is we're talking about right now. It's a bond servant. Stephen Bishop was a slave. He was taken off the plantations. They were the owner, uh, a man named Mr. Gorin. At the time, it was not a national park. It was privately owned, and a guy named Mr. Gorin owned this cave, or at least what little they knew about it, the entrance and a portion of it. And he was, he was getting some visitors, and, and this was back before it was really very popular, but he was trying to make it more popular. And he had the idea that this cave was, there was a lot more to this thing than what, what, they had noticed or what they knew about or what had been explored and the problem was in those days it wasn't a national park and, and, and we didn't have interstate highways there wasn't even state roads and so it was a little challenging to get people to come and so it was kind of expensive to put very much help there to take care of the cave and, and accommodations and so forth so naturally being in the days of slaves it was pretty handy to find this young man named Stephen Bishop who was fairly talented he could read and he was able to relate with other people in, in spite of the fact that he was in a slave's position. And so Mr. Gorin decided that he would bring this Stephen Bishop off of the plantation, bringing up, bring him up to Mammoth Cave, and he would um, use him for a guide. And so that's what he did. And so rich people, wealthy people... Is this 245 or 230? 245. Wealthy people would come in their carriages and they wanted to see the cave. And so it became Stephen's job to explore this cave and to describe the beauties and the, and the fascinations, the, the awesomeness of some of the splendor and spectacles that were inside this cave. So that's what he did. He spent, in his free time, he spent hours and days going down into this cave before the days of any modern technology or tools or lights or lamps or anything like that, using little candles and lanterns and, and string and so forth. And he went miles and miles back into this cave. And with that knowledge and that ability, he was able to give tours of this cave. 
Well, one day, he was exploring, and he, and he, uh, well, I don't just remember all the exact details, but to make a long story short, he discovered a new, a new scene. He broke through a little area as he was, as he was crawling through the cave. He broke through a little area, and he, he discovered a magnificent, beautiful, uh, shining dome with water, I suppose with moisture, it wouldn't have been a lot of water, but moisture ca- uh, covering the surface, and it just shined, and it glistened, and it glittered. And he was excited about this. It was something new he could show people. So he went back out of the cave, and he got Mr. Gorin, his owner, his master, if you please, and he said, I have something I want to show you. In the cave, it's a new place. It's something new. It's magnificent. And it's beautiful. And so he brought Mr. Gorin into the cave with a few other people, and they went back, back through this tough little tight trail again, and they walked, and they, and they looked through the window, and they lit the place up with burning cotton balls to, to shine lights on this, and it glistened, and it was beautiful, and Mr. Gorin got excited. He immediately began to see the benefit this was going to be to him. And that was the last he really ever mentioned, Stephen Bishop. And he went out, and he said, I'm going to call this Gorin's Dome. And he published it to the, to the, to the, uh, to the world, that there's been a new scene, a new, uh, a new site discovered in Mammoth Cave, Gorin's Dome. You can imagine what that did to Stephen Bishop's heart. No reputation. He didn't have a name in it at all. It wasn't called Bishop's Dome. It wasn't called Stephen's Discovery. Nothing like that. It was Gorin's Dome. A little while later, a, little, a similar thing happened. He, was, he, he had a wealthy young man with him, a, a wealthy white explorer, and they were doing the same thing, exploring together this time. Stephen was convinced that there was a river back in there somewhere because of a variety of signs. And so they pressed on and they pressed on and through some mighty tight places and some risky things, they discovered, sure enough, there was a river, true to his suspicion. There was a river running through there with some different wildlife in it. And this young man immediately began to get excited and he says, we're going to call this the River Styx, S-T-Y-X, which is a, I don't know, a Greek mythological thing, something or the other. And uh, they come back out of the cave and the same thing happened. Mr forget his name, Stevenson, I think, gave him $1 gold coin and, and turned away, basically. Mr. Gorin took the news of River Sticks, and, and after a while he brought a newspaper back to Stephen and said, look at this, and he showed him the news article all about this new finding, this river that runs through the Mammoth Cave, something else to bring people, wealthy people, into the cave. Stephen read it. His name was never mentioned. No Stephen Bishop. The discovery of Mr. Bishop, Stephen the Slave, Nothing. He was never mentioned. It was the River Styx and Mr. Stevenson. Now, Stephen Bishop had no choice. He was a slave. He, didn't, he, he liked his job, and he wasn't interested in going back to the plantation, so he quietly swallowed his bitterness. He had some bitterness, the story says. But we have a choice. Stephen didn't have a choice, but we have a choice. We're serving a master. And there's some grand and, and, and wonderful and fabulous things to tell people about. It's marvelous. It's magnificent. It's out of this world. It's beautiful. We have a choice. Whose name's going to be attached to the beauty? Whose name's going to be attached to that fabulous, marvelous, splendorific scene that we have to tell people about? The hope. The life, the joy, the peace, the victory. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, just like Stephen. When you gain someone's admiration for something you do for them, that's just what you've gained. You've gained their admiration. That's where it stops. That's it. You get some admiration. That's all. As kingdom servants, we want more than that. We must be very careful to direct all glory to the one whose name in whose name we've come. We've come as a servant of Jesus Christ. We've come as a servant of His. Back to 1 Corinthians, it just comes to my mind. Apostle Paul is very, very clear about the preaching of the cross and that it's foolishness to them that perish. But to them that are, to us which are saved, it's the power of God. And then he goes on through there and, and talks about the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God. And then he talks about the things that he's chosen. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh and not many mighty, not many noble are called. I don't care how mighty, noble, and wise you think you are. Nothing compares to the, the, the wisdom and nobility and might of Jesus Christ. 
God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yeah, things like black servants that nobody even knows the name of. He's chosen them. He's chosen you. Whether you can talk or not, whether you can write or not, whether you can, whatever you can do, whatever you, He's chosen you. And the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, and this is why, that no flesh should glory in His presence. He made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant. We're called to surrender today our reputation. If nobody ever knows that your name was the tower, that you were responsible for that good deed or for that good message, but Jesus Christ gets the glory, you've succeeded as a servant of Jesus Christ. No reputation. Uh, the next point may give us a practical, uh, actually a practical look at this. We're called to surrender our polarity. I think that's the right word, and if it's not, Kurt will correct me later, I'm sure. It says here that he was made in the likeness of men and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He was made in the likeness of a man. This, young people, is a key point. This is, this is rich here. And again, it was a new thought and I'll confess, I learned this from Brother Dale Heisey. And I'm just rejoicing that, that I can share it with you. Made in the likeness of the one he served. Made in the likeness of the needy. He was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion of a man, he, as a man, he humbled himself. Let's look again where uh, Brother Kurt mentioned this morning, uh, the woman at the well. St. John chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 7, talks about the woman at the well. And I guess we can turn there. Here comes Jesus walking through the dry, dusty desert, coming into Samaria. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus was at Jacob's well there. And Jesus saith to her, Give me to drink. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? And the Jews have, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink. Thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. What I'm getting, where I'm headed with this is verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. <coughs> Think about how Jesus could have come to that woman at the well. Jesus could have come along and he could have said, could have threw his chest out and his shoulders back. I'm a Jew. You're a Samaritan. I have something to offer. Now, now, don't get too close. I have something to offer you. I want to give it. No touch. Stay away there. But I have something I want to give you. If you'll just humble yourself and ask for it, I'll give you something that will change your life. He threw his chest back and just, he could have done that. He had every right to come, like a big mighty man coming down from the sky saying, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah, and I've got everything you need and anything you'll ever want. That's not what Jesus did. He was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He was made in the likeness of the served. He was made in the likeness of the needy. Consider the impact on this woman when this Jew, who was supposed to have no dealings with the Samaritans, when this Jew, and Kurt said it well this morning, in a tired and weary voice, held out his hands and said, I have a need. This one who had everything at his fingertips, this one who could have bestowed everything on this woman, he simply sat down and made himself like the woman, and even needier. And he said, I have a need. Could you help me? I need a drink of water. I'm thirsty. I'm encouraging us that a number one act of service, if you're interested in serving, is asking a favor of someone who you're called to bless. Make them feel valuable. Make them feel like they have something to offer. Your message will go a whole lot farther than if you have something up here that they can hardly reach. But if you're beneath them, and you can say, I'm thirsty, could you give me a drink? Or, 
You know, I'm a little lost here. Could you give me some directions? By the way, you look a little down and out. I, now that you've helped me, you know. Um, let your mind run on that. One of the greatest needs we have as humans, no matter what rank we, we hold, one of the greatest needs we have is to feel valuable. doesn't matter how what station we find ourselves in life. We, we need to feel valuable. And that's one way we can do it. I'm thirsty. Would you give me something to drink? I need a little help here. And then we offer the message. Now that we're on, on common ground, now that we've made ourselves in the form of a servant, made ourselves in likeness, so many mission, so many mission efforts fail. So many of those outreach efforts fail because we go in and set up a, a castle and we run outside of that and disperse and come back and we don't make ourselves in the likeness of the one who has the need. And we're unreachable and the message is, is untouchable. And the message is that if you have Jesus, you've got wealth. Or if you have Jesus, all of a sudden you've got blessing that, that I've never seen. The message of Jesus isn't to give everybody a big house. That's not Jesus' message. It is. It's a big house. Let me tell you, it's a big house. It's 1,500 miles wide and long and tall. That's a big house. But that's not for this life. Made himself in the likeness of men. Form of a servant. The kingdom servant focuses more on the person than on the performance. We need to surrender one more thing, and that's our preferences. In our search for surrender... The Bible goes on and says here in Philippians 3, He became obedient unto death, even, uh, even the death of the cross. I came not to do mine own will, he said, Jesus said, but the will of him that sent me. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The servant is the sent one, not the sender. We don't get to decide where we're called. We don't get to decide where God wants to send us. It's not our option. He, our master is the sender. Our master is the one that says, go explore the cave. Go see if there's any needs. Our master is the one that says, there's a little hovel over there in your neighborhood that has a mother and a son in it, and they have nothing. I want you to walk through that door. Our master is the one that says, there's a message I want you to preach. Deliver it. Our master is the one who says, there's people in Africa who don't know anything about the gospel, and they must know about Jesus Christ to be saved. We don't get to choose that. God decides that. The servant is the sent one, not the sender. St. John 13, verse 16, speaking about feet washing, he says, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. The sent one is servant to the sender. The servant goes when the master sends. He comes when he calls. His heart is burdened with the same burdens of his masters. If he is a kingdom servant and he represents the burden, the message, the job, the, job, the occupation, the whatever it is of a master, he represents that. He is doing that for his master. It's the same burden. His purpose is to accomplish the same business, that business that is most important to his master, the master that he loves. The master who he has gone to the, to the doorpost with and had his ear bored through with the all. He loves that master. And the master's business is his business. The master gets all the credit. There's all kinds of businesses. I think I mentioned this yesterday morning too. All kinds of businesses where a man's name is the name of the business. But behind that man's name and his success is a whole workforce of people whose names are never mentioned. They're never heard about in the public. It's always about the man who sits at the front desk and, and uh, that's all they see. That's the name. That's the face. We want the name to be Jesus Christ. We want the master to be Jesus. We want the name of our business to be the business of Jesus Christ, the salvation of souls. We want it to be the drawing of people into the kingdom. We want it to be the building of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the master. We're called to be his servants. His identity is to be our identity. It's not to be our own. Consider this definition as we commit to being servants of God, true servanthood. True servanthood, true kingdom servanthood is having one's will completely consumed by the will of another. Having one's will completely consumed by the will of another. So the Master might call you. Today, this week, we're going to talk about four more callings. I want to emphasize here today, though, that before we get to tomorrow afternoon and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, let this mind be in you. Any other calling... I'm going to be bold enough to say that any other calling that God might call you into, 
Whatever it is, is going to be built fully and soundly and completely on the foundation of kingdom servanthood. The attitude, the, the, uh, just the personality of a servant has got to be what comes out of us or we're not fit for any other calling. God's callings are all servanthood callings. Remember that. The rest of this week, let this mind be in you. Find surrender. Search out the pretense. Destroy the pride. Be ready for wherever God calls. No matter what your life calling, you don't know what it might be. The Master might call to those dark, ugly places. He might call to the hard places. He might call you to to places you never thought you'd ever go. He might call you to a life of pain. He might call you to a life of wealth. He might call you to a life of service in a foreign land. He may call you to a life of, of gospel preaching every Sunday. He might call you to the mission down in the inner city. He might call you to simply live in your home as a mother or a father and recognizing that your greatest mission field is right around your feet. And that may be 20 years of time you never thought you would just give away like that. We don't know where the Lord is going to call us. I call us. Search out surrender. Find it. And no matter what your life calling is, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The Lord bless you all.